0: Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope.
1: And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. So welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. Education Podcast. We are excited to be continuing the conversation with folks from the Charles A. Dana Center in Austin, Texas, University of Texas. And today we have with us Mary Davis and Denise Thornton, who are kind of bringing us the secondary point of view. And uh, if you've listened to our other episodes, we have some on leadership and we have some on elementary
0: secondary meaning the higher grade levels not like they are secondary and important
2: <laughs> no definitely not
1: <laughs> definitely not <laughs> so I'm gonna let Mary and Denise introduce themselves to you know give us your title and what you do for the Dana Center and then we will start right in with questions
2: I'm gonna let you go so, first, Mary, don't you start? oh okay, I'll oh, start. okay. <laughs> that's a good idea I'll start Um, I'm Mary Davis and I have been at the Dana Center. Denise and I were talking about it. Um, next week we will be there five years. And when I say we, it's because we were both hired on the exact same day. I was a boomerang though. I used to be at the Dana Center back. Do your, uh, audience know that Tim used to be at the Dana Center in the past. It, it has been mentioned. It has been
0: mentioned. Back when the cool kids worked at the Dana Center, yes.
2: Exactly. So uh, I worked back there when Tim was there as well. So I'm a boomerang. I've come back. Um, you did mention that we're housed at the University of Texas, but I need to tell everyone that knows about rivalries in Texas, my heart is deep maroon. Okay? Giga Aggies all the way. But my paycheck's burnt orange, and I'm very happy about that. I have taught everywhere from sixth grade through pre-calculus in Texas and in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've also done um, math coaching in both situations as well. Uh, At the Dana Center, though, I am a professional development specialist, which means, well, which used to mean that I would go out to the schools and do professional development, which now means I sit on Zoom and do professional development during this time of COVID. So um, I think that's it. But if not, I do exactly the same thing pretty much that Denise does, so I'm going to throw it over to Denise.
3: Thanks, Mary. Um, yeah, I'm Denise Thornton. Um, I'm Mary's sidekick, put it that way. Uh, we're like twins. We we like to think of ourselves like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger when we're together. Oh,
1: that is a good description. I would I would agree,
3: <laughs> having seen them. <laughs>
1: in action together? Yes. Oh,
0: yes. Uh, All right, now I've never met Denise to see her face to face. So who's so which one of you is Arnold and which one is Danny?
2: I'll be back, Tim. <laughs> I'll be
0: back.
3: <laughs> oh man. Well, and it was real. it was really good if you guys know another uh, girl on our team, Ann Joyo. Uh, she has a longer last name, but she's like 6'3" and I had to facilitate with her and I'm 5'1" maybe on a good day, and uh, and so she's like about a foot, over a foot taller than me, so it's always interesting. But introductions, right? So I am Mary Sidekick on the K-12 services team. Um, Mary gave an interesting title. I'm professional learning facilitator, which essentially means same thing as she said. We, we teach professional development to teachers and leaders um, wherever they ask us to. So it could be in Texas, it could be in Guam, who knows. And I've been with the Dana Center, like she said, for five years. And I don't have to run off every little uh, detail of my background. But it's, again, very similar. I was a math teacher. uh, If you name it, I taught it from grade six to high school. And I also was an instructional coach and before joining the Dana Center. So, yeah, we are so excited to be a part of this conversation. So thanks, Karen and Tim, for inviting us.
1: Well, I'm very excited to have you guys here. I actually have had the pleasure to work with both of you for what? Four years at least, right? Yeah. And so I have seen you both.
2: You, you were in the program before we were in the program, Karen, because elementary started a year before and you were with elementary.
1: Oh, OK. All right. So, but the exciting thing is you guys both said you're professional learning facilitators or professional development facilitators, but you're really so much more than that because the programs that I was involved in working with you, you developed the whole, how we're going to train the trainers and then how we're going to train the leaders. You worked that whole thing. So you're not just doing the facilitation, you are creating it. And that's part of what I really want to kind of dive into today how do you do a systemic change? And maybe we talk about the two big projects that I know that I was involved in. I know you guys have a lot more, but the Department of Defense Education Activities was the first one, which I was so impressed with the scope of that and how you all over the world were training teachers to go out there and change how the Department of Defense schools taught mathematics. So that's sort of maybe my first question is, how do you even start when uh, somebody comes to you and says, this is what we want, and it's this huge, incredible, worldwide change like the Department of Defense was?
2: Well, to be totally honest with you, um, the first year that DODIA, which is this acronym for Department of Defense Education Activity, um, Denise and I weren't hired yet because it was an elementary a focus that very first year. Right, Uh, But we heard the stories on how it was started because they basically came in, contracts were all signed in like April, and they had to get people overseas by June. And so um, it was all hands on deck, basically. Then when Denise and I came on the next year to start the secondary work, we were hired February 1st that year. And by April, we were doing... They trained the trainer for, what was it, like 80 facilitators that were going to go out and do our trainings, both in the United States, because there are some DODIA locations in the United States, but also all over the world. And that's where we met you.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And and I'll add on to that, Mary, is when we got brought on to the project, um, we had heard many stories about the successes and challenges that had occurred in the first year, right? When they brought on all of the elementary teachers and um, we learned a lot, we took a lot of that feedback. And I think the place we wanted to start was getting a little bit more context of what the Department of Defense teachers and that, that whole system was like. So one thing that stuck out to me whenever we were learning about the DoDIA folks was that the average years of service that a teacher had was 17 years of experience, right? So we were going to be stepping into this system um, and this culture of where people had been doing the same thing for a long time. And so we knew that part of the change had to come in from the perspective of giving, we had to motivate them to want to change um, and see value in doing something different than what they had already done.
2: Well, and when you said that they um, did the same thing, they did the same thing, but different things. I know that sounds crazy.
1: I <laughs> Like that, that is, I don't think people realize the challenge because when you go into a school system, usually teachers are all following the same you know curriculum they're doing it their own way. The Dodea system, which is why I was so impressed, every teacher's doing their own thing because there was <laughs> there was no curriculum so that's a huge challenge.
2: There was no curriculum mandated there was no there weren't even standards. they did not even have standards really I mean, they had a few very open-ended standards. Um, No high-stakes assessments. Um, And now they have both standards as well as uh, high-stakes assessments that are put into place now. So they just did whatever they wanted to do, basically.
0: All right. I have to share my one DoDEA story. So I did DoDEA PD, the generation before you guys, because they adopted the textbooks from the publisher I worked for. And so I did the world tour. And I had a teacher with the one line that I'll never forget. He came up to me before a workshop. It was in Seoul, South Korea. And before the workshop started, he said, So I hear you're going to teach us how to make lemons today. And I looked at him strangely. I said, Really? And he's like, Well, my mom told me that if life hands you lemons, you should make lemonade. And your book's a lemon. So I assume you're going to teach me how to make lemonade. (laughs)
2: That is a that is a lot of the walls that that were there. That we heard. And in some situations, Like Denise said, on average, it was 17 years. It was 17 years on average because we had some places that those teachers had been teaching 20, 30 years (laughs) and some like in um, Japan area, usually they were brand new teachers that had just decided, Hey, I'm a brand new teacher and let me go ahead and teach in Japan. (laughs) So the level was, was crazy as well.
1: So just thinking back to some of the conversations we had with uh, Tracy and Michael, who were, you know, giving us an elementary perspective, I, I feel like with elementary, it might be easier to get them to change because, you know, the change you were trying to make was much more let's do math, like in a visual and problem solving, those types of things. Do you find DoDEA being a prime example, but also you work with states like Louisiana, where you're going in to ask the teachers to teach a certain way that obviously many don't want to but is secondary more difficult to to get the change to happen like I, I is there more resistance and how do you deal with that
2: you know secondary goes in our definition from 6th grade through calculus sometimes but the middle school is teaching still teaching a lot of models they're teaching strip diagrams they're doing a lot of of these um, visuals. So I would say that the middle school was much more open to change. And not only that, they saw the difference of the kids coming in from fifth grade to sixth grade, even in that first year with all the pushback from the teachers in DoDEA, they saw that difference already and were were saying it. So middle school, I think we, we had a pretty good buy-in. Um, high school, <laughs> Yeah, high school, which is what I taught most of my years. I, I was a high school teacher. I still consider myself a high school teacher. And, you know, they're so focused on the content that they're teaching. I mean, if you've taught 17 years and taught algebra every day for 17 years out of the same textbook, doing the same thing, the last thing you want is someone to come in and tell you that you need to do it differently. And so the challenge was to make sure that they understand that we weren't asking them because they were doing anything wrong. The math that they taught was not wrong. It's just the kids weren't getting it. You know, there were some kids that get it. There's always some kids that get it, but they had to figure out a way to reach more students. And that was the statement from DoDEA. uh, The goal, the main goal was that we want all students to meet or exceed the expectations. So they had to realize that, and when they meant all, we had special ed teachers in there and the special ed teachers would challenge those other teachers it's like yeah you say that you teach this but what about my kids you know you send them off to me and you know and i mean there were some really interesting conversations that we had so that little tiny word all changed the meaning and and really got the high school teachers to to start thinking about it and i think that the first year we had some buy in but by the second year even the high school teachers started to see some of the the positives of it.
1: And that just brings me to another kind of question. It It's really about the systemic change. And so that's one of the things that I think the Dana Center does so well is they don't go in and do a one-off PD, you know, one day of training or a week of training even. You guys were there with the DoDIA for what? F- four years total, but three years for each group you know, elementary in three years. And it was so it was a rollout type of thing. And I and that's sort of the same as with Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, Denise?
3: Yes, that's correct. We did that over four years also. So is that
1: like, is that something if because a lot of schools are like we want our teachers to teach different and use research strategies and those types of things, but we can't get them to change even after we've done professional development. Is it the systemic, the, the constant long-term support that you think is really making a difference?
3: Well, I think there's, I, I was still chewing on that question that you asked Mary um, a second ago about, is it harder to teach high school teachers or secondary teachers over elementary? And I guess if I'm answering honestly, it'd be yes and no, maybe It it depends, maybe is the answer I would give. And I think because in all of those instances, when we start to actually make systemic change, it's when we have the opportunity to have teachers examine their own mindsets and beliefs about the way that students learn. So in DoDEA and both Louisiana, there was an element that I know I never received when I was having my teacher training program. Nobody ever talked to me about how do you really believe that kids learn? Do you really believe that all students are able to do it? I I never even thought about it until we started embarking on this work with large school systems. And when when you ask a teacher to truly think about what their beliefs are about um, kids, and you don't force them to share with anybody, but you help them internalize it, I feel like that's the place where you start to see differences in the way that they think or teach or um, interact with one another. And so, yes, I think it's important to have continued support, but I think you have to be willing to ask some hard questions of teachers and leaders and see what their attitudes are about change.
2: And I think that idea of coming back again and again, we were able to see that change. If the mindset at the beginning was, we can't do this, our kids can't do this, we're not going to do this. By the end, we were seeing that their mind set had changed and in doing so their teaching had changed as well
0: so i might be asking you to speculate here but uh that resistance like where do you believe that stems out of like uh, intellectual concern that no this research-based stuff really doesn't work um uh, some sort of personal fear like i mean where do you see the and like i said that might be speculation because it's not like teachers are going to be that straightforward necessarily with you Um, but i'm just curious as to your thoughts
3: I think it comes from comfort.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that too. Exactly. That would have been weird if we said it right at the same time.
3: Yeah. I told you twins (laughs) were Arnold and Danny. Um, (laughs) But I think it comes from a place of comfort, right? Um, And I have to even ask myself this whenever I have resistance about something is what is it Why am I not willing to change? Is it because it's requiring me to learn something new and admit that I don't know how to do something or I don't know um, something well enough? Is it because I'm doing something wrong? I think a lot of it is just from, from that stem. Mary, what were you thinking?
2: Well, I was also thinking, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier about the fact that we had to convince them that they weren't doing something wrong that we weren't there to tell them that everything they've done for the last 17 years was wrong because it wasn't, it's just a different, you know, so I think some of the, and again, I was thinking comfort, but some of the uncomfortableness was because they thought we were coming in as like the gurus and we were just telling them that it was wrong and then once they realized that that really wasn't the case, that we were all teachers coming in to just talk math and to really think about how best children learn and, and work together, um, one of the, the guys that we worked with over there always said it was, he, he hated us to call it professional development or professional learning. It always had to be shared learning. It was, we are shared learning. And because that's what it was all about. I learned, they learned, everybody learned.
3: Well, and all four of us have worked with many teachers. I mean, regardless of who you're working with, where you're going into, you always have to be sensitive about the way that you're framing questions or the way that you're offering information to somebody else to consider, because you want to make it palatable for them. You want to make it in a way where they want to eat whatever you're serving or they want to think about whatever it is you're asking them to think about and not turn them off. So I think that's just kind of a really overarching idea that you have to think about anytime that you're trying to help people think about things differently is the way that you're delivering that message.
0: And especially given, like you said, you're talking to a group of teachers, many of whom had a lot of experience. I think Mary said it really well. It's you have to validate the expertise that they're bringing into the room before you can encourage them to look and change. Like, you know, there are many people in the world that appreciate someone sitting them down and telling them everything they're doing wrong and that they don't know what the heck they're doing. Um, Especially your profession where you've dedicated yourself to doing this and doing it to the best of your ability.
3: Yeah, definitely. You have to you have to really praise them and really acknowledge all the experience that they have and almost go in and act like not that you know more than them. You, you know, you have to you have to start it off with tell me all the things that you know. Let me let me learn everything about you and what what you've done, where you've been.
2: It's one of our norms. Everybody comes with expertise.
1: As a person who has participated in your train the trainer models and gone out then and trained teachers, collaboration is such a significant part of that where they're working together to solve a problem and approach it from different perspectives. So what do you think are some of the uh, key strengths of the models that you use from the Dana Center that really is supporting systemic change in these large school districts? Because I know a lot of school districts try to do things and they don't work. So what might be helpful advice for them, things they need to think about?
2: Well, I think that really lends itself to our theory of action that we've always had. And that is that we have this cyclical reflective tools that we take out in processes. And at first they're like another tool and we use it over and over again. It's just consistently, it's like, we're going to do this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to do this. We're going to reflect on it because by doing that, it starts to ingrain it. So we have different tools for planning, for um, looking at curriculum, vertical alignment.
1: That's one of my favorite, by the way. I use it often. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And then it's through that learning, that predictability, that, that persistence, that the teachers come out with expertise in the matter. I mean, they start to realize, hey, looking at the standards really does help what I'm doing in the classroom. Or maybe the curriculum or the textbook isn't exactly aligned to the standards. I may have to make a tweak here or there. And those are the things that, that we talk through. And then that leads to we're gone. And they're still, you know, sustaining it and having success. So I think that's that's where it all has to be is once once we leave. I mean, yes, it's neat that we get to go quite regularly and meet with the people, but eventually we the contract ends and we wanna make sure that it's sustained. So those reflective cyclical tools are are what really stays behind to keep it going.
3: Yeah, I always felt like I was kind of a broken record, almost where I would say, "What we're trying to do is give you, like, empower you with these tools and this information, so that you can use it long after we're gone. You don't need us here. The goal is once you've got everything that you need to know, you can do it on your own without us." And um, that started to stick with them, and I think hits at that point that Mary said, "All of." Our work in changing systems is about getting them to be able to sustain whatever the work is.
1: You mentioned tools and and we don't mean like a hammer and a nail kind of tool. So can you kind of just maybe give us an example of what you're talking about when you're saying tools?
2: Well, sometimes we do. No, I'm teasing. Uh,
1: (laughs) I know Denise has her little frog, but
2: It, it really helps. No, um. Okay, so you mentioned the vertical alignment. We might as well talk about that first because it is one of the most- It's powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. And that is that uh, if you're doing a standard in your classroom, say you're in eighth grade, in the past, it was such that you just taught in isolation. But with most standards now, there is that coherence between grade levels. And so one of the tools that we do is we go back to find the origin that leads up to that lesson in your classroom. And then where does it go after it leaves your classroom? So we actually build this. It looks kind of like a, a ladder. We use sentence strips, basically, or big pieces of paper. And we look at kindergarten. Sometimes it does start as early as kindergarten, and first grade and second grade. And we build it on up. So that teachers all of a sudden realize why am I teaching integers in algebra two if they've had it since sixth grade, you know. So um, it really helps them see that. The other thing we do is to ask them where do where do things start? Where does a concept start? Where does a concept get more difficult? Um, where do where are they expected to have fluency? Where does it disappear and never mention again? And we just have to know it. And what does this mean for us as a teacher? And so they have to really talk about that as well. So it's more than just rehashing the standards. They have to dig into those standards and figure it out. And then probably the most favorite part of our presentation is when we walk up and we rip one of them off (laughs) and we say, so let's just pretend that in fifth grade, the teacher was out all year and they had a substitute and they really didn't get to this what does that do and of course you know with the the covid this year it's really hit home because last year so many students actually missed such a big chunk of the work and it's like so what do we have to do in order to catch that student up and so it really does show the big picture
1: so basically a tool is almost like, and, and I'm going from my own experience, if I'm trying to describe to somebody, it's it's like a template in a sense that they're following, but it's really the deeper conversation that they end up having as a result of that template, the filling in and finding the different, you know, standards if we're thinking back to vertical alignment.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, the bottom line is we're really trying to take them out of those, pockets of greatness that we used to call them you know like um Denise is a great teacher and she gets um she does everything with her kids and blah 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 and the principals love her and everybody loves her but she keeps her door shut and she's just teaching away we want to have those discussions why did this work why did this not work and so these tools like you said are set forward so that during PLC times or during um you know, a staff development day or something like that, where you have a little bit of extra time? Because it does take time to do one of these that you can actually dig in and and look for some of the connections.
3: Well, that was a challenge too, was having teachers see or having teachers understand the importance or see value and the importance of taking that amount of time to talk through vertical alignment of standards. You know, for them, Probably a quick reaction they might give is, Why are we, what, when will I ever have this amount of time? Or why would I spend this amount of time to talk about um, how fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade build on one another or are connected to one another? And so we had to take them through a couple iterations of it for them to be able to understand, oh, now I see the big picture of how this all fits in together and what my role is and and also feel and and hear what it sounds like whenever um they're really talking about standards and learning and teaching. Um, I think that's always the challenge when you're talking with teachers is like taking away from planning in the way that they're traditionally used to, which is oftentimes, what are we going to teach tomorrow? What less what worksheet do we need to run off? Who's going to make the copies and when do we have an assembly? you know, and so kind of shifting, shifting what the focus is.
2: Which for those people listening, we've all been there. You always have days like that. But the challenge is to get people to think broader and to work together. So
1: a big part of that is, is the collaboration, not only among the same grade level or topic teachers, but also that vertical, so a fourth grade teacher talking to a sixth grade teacher and and really discussing and that doesn't happen very often, right in the real world, especially now with covid. so how is that something that you try to build into your professional facilitation as part of this systemic change?
3: I think in any of the trainings that we have, I mean one of the first questions we always ask each other is. Well, who's going to be in the room like what what what's the dynamic of the group that we're about to have is it going to be k to six is it going to be six to 12 or just six to eight and from there we try to build in opportunities where they get to work together at just their grade level and make sense of their specific content or the types of learning experiences that they're going to provide for kids but then we try to build in opportunities also for them to meet in mixed groups so that they can say, okay, well, in sixth grade, here's what it looks like when we're teaching ratios and proportions. And seventh grade, what do you guys do? And so, you know, we try to give them opportunities to have that dialogue back and forth.
2: I think it's also important to note that with anything nowadays, it's all done virtually now. So it's important to keep the interaction just as much as if you were standing there together. So there's a lot of online tools and things that we use. We don't like calling them webinars anymore. It's web events, you know, basically, so that teachers have to get on and they have to to get involved. Denise and I always laugh about our very first <laughs> WebEx experience that uh, we had back with DoDEA. And because of the way that DoDEA set up, we couldn't show a video. We couldn't even put our faces on because there wasn't enough broadband and stuff. Um, it's amazing how far we've come in these five years. And so literally we would do things and then tell them to work on something, hit pause and then look at each other for 15 minutes and then go back on. With the onset of, of new technology and things, it has become more and more easy to to pull people from different campuses different states, different countries together to actually have those discussions. And it's really exciting. I am ready to see some people in person, however, again.
0: But you do sort of lead into a question I wanted to ask you guys. I mean, you've been talking about how your lives have changed in the world of COVID and now you're doing virtual PD. How much of that do you see becoming the new normal that even post-COVID that what things have you changed in your practice as... Um, professional learning providers that you see becoming part of your normal post-COVID?
3: I would say that at the beginning, we had to do a lot of like technology, just like norm setting of here's how you use this. Here, everybody get on mute. Here's the features. Well, we don't have to teach about how to use Zoom or how to use Teams. People know how to use that. So um, I think that's been... A really easy norm because you can kind of get into a meeting. And if you only have a set amount of time, you can not have to worry about all of the technology details and pretty much know that everybody knows how to use it.
2: I think one of the things with that, that we're going to um, hold on to probably is even when we can go back to in person, I think we'll probably have a mix. Like, for example, with the Eldo work. we had nine days that, that we were in person in Louisiana. And so we would fly back and forth nine times, or some people would have to fly, drive all over Louisiana and then fly back. But in any case, uh, I think the situation would be such that for very specific content that we wanted to be there in person and do an activity maybe with the, the hands-on models and we want to talk about it and, you know, and get into some detailed stuff, those will be in person still but when when it's something like, uh, let's discuss, you go back and you do it in your classroom and we want to have a touch base, we don't have to go to Louisiana to do it now. People are used to coming online and having those discussions. So personally, I see it as a more of a combined model. But who knows?
0: So can we post a link to your dissertation? because my next question was seriously going to be what is is there? has anyone done the research yet behind the efficacy? Of uh, in person versus remote professional learning,
2: we've always had the situation being in Texas, even just working in Texas when we used to just work in Texas, that we have very suburban areas, obviously, those people that know Texas know Dallas and Houston. um what they might not know are places like dime box and you know <laughs> you know things like that and so um, and that's in any state. So I think one of the things that that can really grow, and I don't know how it affects the Dana Center, but how it could really grow is, you know, you can link up some smaller districts to have those discussions. It's similar to DoDEA. In DoDEA, it, it's a big district, but when we're talking about the fact that they have, you know, 20 high schools or 15 high schools, We're talking about 15 high schools all across the world. We're not talking about 15 high schools that can meet in a cafeteria one day. So um, it became very important to have that, we called it a community of practice, where they can come together and ask questions and share learnings, or even uh, it became that they shared actual curriculum and, and changes that they'd made in their classrooms and how it worked and how it didn't work. And I think that is going to be a a big component of anything that we do because no longer is it going to be bring a hundred people to sit in a room together. I just don't think, at least for the foreseeable future, it's not going to be that way. And once it becomes more of a norm that it doesn't always have to be that way, I think we're going to, you know, see more of it. And I think we're going to be able to reach more people that way.
1: That's what my whole doctorate was about, was hybrid PD. So it's now become a reality for a lot of people. It's kind of exciting to see. But how does that impact? Because I know your trainings in particular are very hands-on, very manipulative, very, you know, let's dive in, let's do math, let's move things around, especially in the elementary, but secondary as well. So how does that get impacted because you're using technology? Like, have you guys uh changed how you show the visualizations and the models if doing it digitally or are you doing a camera on your hands
3: we definitely have had to rethink if we were in person and we would have people write on chart paper and respond you know how can we still get everybody to share their responses that's one example right So we've used different resources like Jamboard or Padlet or whatever it is. The thing that I've learned is if you want people to think about it and talk about it in the virtual setting, they need to be able to see it. They need to be able to all look at the same image at the same time and have a couple minutes to process it and then give them an opportunity to respond. And it might be that we ask them just to respond in the chat box. They're not necessarily going to respond out loud because of the nature of muting and unmuting, but maybe it's just everybody type a response in the chat box or type a response to a partner in the chat box. Something where um, we can still get some engagement um, in the virtual space, but get at the same goal that we were aiming for that we would have done face-to-face in person. I think another tool that we've used often now has been Desmos. And so when we use Desmos, we'll use that to select and sequence work. That's really the powerful part of that tool is people can give their responses and you can take a snapshot of it and then you can quickly just display it on screen, whether it's a graph or a table or just a free response. And then that gives people something to react to or respond to. So those are just ways that we have to ask ourselves, how can we still accomplish this same goal in a virtual space that the same thing that we would do in person, how can we do it virtually?
2: And I think also that that along with that question that you just asked at the end, we also have to ask ourselves, are we making it just about the technology or you know, is it just because it's really cool to do it on technology or you know, is it something that they could actually do? themselves, and then just report out. Um, most of the time, we're able to find some sort of a technology that can help with the tiles, or they can help with, you know, whatever the case may be. But sometimes it's not. And so it's like, take your time, get in your groups, talk about it, do the work, and then we're going to come back together and we're going to share. And the teachers have gotten good at uh, emailing us copies so that we can share it with everybody or sharing their screen if they did it you know, virtually or document cameras. People are starting to use their phones as document cameras. So it's not that we're trying to get away from that hands-on thinking process. It's just we have to, every single time that we take one of our protocols, and and try to put it into the digital, we sit down and have the conversation. Does this stay? Does this go? Um, how do we change it if it stays? And sometimes, you know, that's a, a difficult decision.
0: But I think what you're talking about, the ability to do that, I mean, we've talked about tools with several guests on the podcast, is that the evolution in the last couple of years, and obviously I think COVID has helped, but tools like Desmos, and I'm going to say this for greenhouse, like CasioClassPad.net, our tools are, I mean, but the distinction there is now we have legitimate technology tools that allow, that use the tool to allow us to create more efficient mathematical experiences and to allow that collaboration. It's not, look at this great tool now that I can do this mathematics really quickly to give me an answer, but actually using a tool to promote engagement and promote thinking, which I, I think is really new.
3: Yeah. How long is it going to take for them to do this? Is it easier if we make it first and just let them look at it? Or is it better for them to create it themselves? Like what what's the purpose of this activity? And I think it, that just goes back to the question about the use of technology also is, you know, what teachers, whenever they're thinking about using technology, you, you're you know, you want them to consider it's like what learning is supposed to be occurring from whatever you're doing. And so it kind of has made us put our money where our mouth is, right? And we have to say, okay, how are we designing this so that it's still getting at the same goals that we were trying to accomplish before?
2: Yeah. And I think that because it is so new, people like to play with them. I mean, we all do, right? You get a new technology, you're like, "Oh, this is cool. I can do this and I can do this." And you start to put it in everywhere so that, you know, it's like, let's do a jam board again. But you don't always need it either. So, it's really deciding on on when it works best and how it can help in the the conversation.
1: Using tools strategically.
0: Huh. <gasps> there you I've go. I've heard that before. <laughs>
1: Mathematical practice number four. <laughs> Ding! So, my question that I like to kind of especially people like you guys who do a lot of professional development and really work on systemic change, so long term professional development, what are some pieces of advice that you could give education leaders who are trying to make some long-term change in their own schools or with their teachers, no matter what they're teaching, like what some things you have learned in you're doing this yourselves that you could offer as advice?
2: I think one of the first things that I would offer as advice is that change takes what, three to five years? Isn't that what research says? And everybody's at different spots. I think that was one of the huge things that I learned about change is when we started looking at the research and and how I might be at a level where I just want to know do I have something to teach tomorrow and someone else might be at a level that they're ready to you know take this and and share it with the world type thing and so we have to respect where everybody is and realize that it's it's not going to be an overnight experience. So no matter how many um, shared learnings you sit through and no matter how many things that you try in the classroom, don't give up on the first one because it takes that systemic and that um, cyclical, try it again, try it again and keep trying it. um, And that is what's going to, to take hold. And so don't give up, basically. I said a lot for just three words, right? Don't give up.
1: I, that's a great point, though, because it's not just the change in the teacher trying again and again. It's often you're changing the students at the same time because they're not used to being taught this new way or, or this, you know, having to think. You know, they just usually are memorizing. So it's not just change in teachers. It's change in, in the students as well.
2: Well, and change in parent, And
1: change of parent, parents.
2: Parents right? have to, yeah, they don't understand why... They aren't doing things the way they did.
3: I would say a a big piece that I've learned is that leaders play a huge role in supporting change and holding people accountable to what that change is. So I'll use Louisiana for, for one context. Sometimes you would have leaders, campus leaders, district leaders that didn't know what the whole purpose of an initiative was. So because they didn't have the knowledge that they needed to know, they might send the wrong person to the training. So in Louisiana we needed people that could be strong content leaders and sometimes they would send a first year teacher to the training. And that just wasn't the right fit for what that initiative was. And so I think a lot of times you need everybody in the system to know what their role is and have frequent checks along the way to make sure that everybody's supported and moving forward.
0: Okay. I have my last question, which is wonderfully actually related to what Karen said, but she talked about leaders. I now being a humble high school math teacher.
1: Humble? <laughs> are we <you> sure?
2: I'm <laughs> and, laughing um, at humble. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not laughing at math teacher. I. You are an awesome math teacher. Yeah, I'm yeah, laughing yeah. at humble.
0: And All right. And as someone who's a, a middle-aged cis white male, so of course I play a lot of golf because that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, so when they, when I go to a golf pro, they say, you know, when you begin, when you swing golf club, you can only really think about one or two things. Because if you put too many things in my head, you're not going to think about any of them and you'll do nothing. All right. So what are your swing thoughts for high school math teachers? What are the one or two, one or two things you would say as a math teacher you would want to have in their head as they begin to teach a class every day.
2: My first one would be that every student in there, like we said the norm, everybody has expertise. Every student in there can contribute something. So find that something. The second thing would be I guess, you know, I don't want to I don't want to downplay the importance of learning the math because it is important for SATs and you know, kids moving on to college and career. So I I don't want to say that it's not important because it is, but I I want them to realize there's other things that they're teaching in that classroom. There's a lot of social skills that they're teaching and they're watching you as well. So remember the non-math part of your education in the classroom.
3: Mine would be um, similar to your first one, Mary, is just I'd want teachers to ask themselves, like, what is my real belief about the way that the kids can learn this, you know, am I holding on to something? Am I, uh, is there something in the way that I'm interacting with my students that is conveying to them that I don't think they can do it, right? Like just really interrogating what their own beliefs are about the way kids learn. Um, I would say that's first. And then my second one would just be about, do kids have a chance to think before they do? So what I mean by that is a lot of times, a, a secondary level, we're really process oriented. You know, you're, you're following a process to solve what the value of X is, just giving that as an example. But do we ever give kids the opportunity first just to think? So what do you notice about this? What do you wonder about this? What do you observe? And can you ask kids just to, to pause for a second before doing, can they think before they do? And I think those would be my two.
2: You've told, you've told a lot of kids that over the years.
0: (laughs) I tell my teenagers that every day. I wish they would think before they do. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's brilliant. No, I really, I really like it. And that's a nice, that's a nice way to think about it quickly too. Like my question is for myself is uh, at the end of class, like, all right, who was doing the thinking today?
1: Well, on that note, I think we have given everyone something to think about. So thank you, Mary and Denise, for sharing your expertise and your experiences. It's been fun. I've missed talking to you guys. I think this is the first like year I haven't seen you, so it's kind of sad. And for those of you who are listening, we will um, have some show notes with the links to all the resources they mentioned there as well. So
0: Mary Denise if, if people have questions or they want to know more about the kind of work you guys have done, how is the best way for them to get a hold of you?
2: Well they can get on the Dana Center has a great webpage that shares all the stuff that we do. but more personally, if you're interested, um, you can drop me an email that's fine by me. Mary Davis all one word at Austin that's where we live dot U Texas that's where we work edu. That's what you do. That's what I do.
0: <laughs> if you put in your email that you'll buy Mary and her husband Salt Lake barbecue, she'll probably do a webinar for you. And, uh,
2: <laughs> I'm telling you, you come on down to Austin. There's Salt Lake barbecue like blocks from my house. Well,
1: thank you. And I will make sure that we have included all the links in Mary's email in the show notes so thank you for listening everyone and be sure to visit us on our webpage 180days.education where you can find all our past episodes there as well so thank you for listening and have a good evening
2: there will always be those who scoff at intellectual who cry out against research who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.